still talking about motivating our teams to do the things that we think are necessary to fulfill the vision that God has given us. And today I want to talk about motivating teams through what I call positive deviance. Now, I've been strongly influenced by a book called The Power of Positive Deviance, and some of that's going to leak into this. But these are really my thoughts. These are reflections, as I read the book, of what I've learned over the years and what I've done um, felt led by the spirit to do over the years. And some of the responses to that, some of the responses to me as a person, some of the disappointments and some of the victories along the way. But let's just jump into a couple of definitions here. I, I want to read a definition that I wrote of positive deviant. This now the word deviant sounds kind of negative, but you know, a positive deviant, somebody who who deviates from what we perceive as the norms and, and sees unusual results from it. That's why it's called positive deviant. And it's an individual or group who achieves the seemingly intractable, the thing that everybody's trying to do. It's not working for them, but it works for these people. An individual or group who achieves the seemingly intractable while overlooked or sometimes even ostracized by their community. There's a tendency for us to worship procedure or worship doctrine or worship whatever we've lit on. And, you know, one of the things that I learned early on is I am not the Holy Spirit. I believe that everything I believe is the gospel truth, but I'm smart enough to know that not everything I believe can possibly be the actual truth. It has to be Ralph's perception of the truth. And when I learned to humble myself that much, I was able to uh, respond differently at the procedural level than I would if I was just, you know, kind of um, thinking I'm right and everybody else is wrong. So what I really want to do here is look for the people who are getting results, people I may not like, but they're getting results and I'm not getting. And how can I learn from those people? And so the whole idea of positive deviance is this. It's the art of discovering and implementing the practices of people who deviate from accepted norms while achieving your own desired results. They're getting the results you desire, but they've broken from the norms that, that sometimes hold you in their grasp. And so I, I've put down here a, a few things that we need to really consider as, as an overview of positive deviance in practice. First is an assumption that solutions to intractable problems actually do exist. The second is a practicality that the solutions are often discovered by a minority within a collective. There's, a, there's, a, there's often a group of people who are doing something different. They see logic in it, we don't, and we could learn from them. Here's frustration. It, among the innovators, the innovators often get overlooked or resisted by leadership that has all the power. Uh, first step to break out of all this is to ask the question, where is this already working? Where's the thing that we're trying to do happening? And then ask it without prejudice. In other words, I'm not going to filter out people because maybe they got some weird doctrine, but their practice works right for what we're trying to do, and I can learn from them. How can I learn from them? And so um, observation comes into play. You're going to have to go watch it. Don't just talk to them, because oftentimes uh, people who are the outliers, people who are the black swans, they don't understand what it is that they're doing that makes them so successful. 
um, they, 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 they don't fully uh, grasp it themselves. And when they try to explain it to you, they'll tell you things that are different than the things that you can find when you observe them in practice. You'll notice things that other people wouldn't notice, including the, the, the practitioners. And then the practice here is that observation and imitation, observation and imitation lead to better practice, which leads to better thinking which is a bottom-up approach. Oftentimes we try to think our way into a new practice. Here, the idea is to flip it over. We're gonna watch somebody, we're gonna learn from them. We're gonna go try it out. And then that will change our thinking because what you end up with, if you're an innovator, is a little different than those innovators who are already doing something very well. You're gonna do it according to your calling, your gifts, and the unique mix of people that put in your sphere of influence. And so uh, we don't wanna just copy. We, we wanna observe and imitate and learn and think and change. Now let's discuss some examples of failure and success. Notice I put the word failure first. And uh, the first of these is the Genentech Corporation. They devised a new uh, medication, but it was difficult to administer. And so it made it difficult to sell. This is in the book, The Power of Positive Deviance. I would recommend you buy the book. And so um, pretty long section in the book where it describes how difficult and, you know, the wonder drug, but the doctors aren't using it because uh, it has to be administered in an office. Uh, there are shots to be given. There are, there are procedures to learn. And the truth was nobody was learning those procedures. The salesman are out there talking about the good points of the medicine, except there's a couple people in one region of the company that are having raging success. And so immediately the company jumps on them and decides they must be cheating. They're cutting into other people's territory. They're doing something wrong here. And now they're the outliers who are having success, but they're the goats instead of the sheep. They're the people that management is mad at. And this so often happens. And, and so they're all upset with them. Finally, somebody gets smart enough to go in and, and, and follow them around and see what they're doing. What they're actually doing is setting up lab situations in doctor's offices and training the personnel, often not the doctor, but the personnel that works with the doctor. This is how you do it. And then of course, the doctors are seeing success and they're jumping on it and, and they're buying the product or they're selling the product. And, um, and, and then the company wised up. Weirdly, that company went back to old practices in the future and didn't see the success that they could have had. There's another story that, again, they tell in the book, and uh, this is about malnourished children in Vietnam after the Vietnam War. After we had left, we began to send aid agencies, and, and we were, you know, children are malnourished. Uh, um, they're basically living on rice, and there's not enough nourishment in the rice, and so they're giving them powdered milk, and they're giving them uh, vitamins are given all these things and the kids thrive. And then as soon as the aid is taken away, uh, the country can't stand on its own and, and children are, are, are sick. They've got bloated bellies. They're even dying in some situations. And somebody gets asked to go from another country into Vietnam. Uh, they're told you only have six months to show results. Normally when an aid company comes in or an aid organization comes in, it takes them a year to just get set up. And so they realize we gotta do something really quick. And they stumble onto this idea of positive deviance. Who is actually somewhere in some of these villages 
doing things that work. And so you'd need to read the book to really get the whole story, but they're finding things that like a, a mother who is uh, basically forcing her child to wash her hands after she touches the dog, to wash her hands after she touches her brother's body. She's just a little kid. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. And that kid is doing better than the others because she's not getting sick. She's not, you know, um, and, and so just off the bare stuff that was there. Then there are others where the, the father who's a rice grower is, is picking these little tiny shrimps out of the rice paddy. And really, you know, I've been in all over Asia. Nobody knows how those little shrimps get there. You know, you take a dry field, you dig ditches, you dump water into it. And suddenly they got these little shrimps growing everywhere, but they begin to, to, to collect the shrimps and feed them to their baby. Everybody else thinks the shrimps, shrimps are poison. They're going to kill my kid, but this kid is thriving. Another thing that they were doing was um, gathering greens and having the children eat the greens, the stuff that's readily available, the parts of the rice plant that are just going to waste. And, and these kids are doing really well. And then they, they come up against all this superstition and all of this pushback from the village. And now they, they've gone in and they've observed. This is how they learned because the people couldn't tell them what they were doing different. We're, and you know the standard questionnaires, they answer the questions the same as everybody else answers them. When you go in and watch, you see, oh, shrimp, oh, greens, oh, washing your hands. And you begin to realize, and then the cool thing, and this is the part that you gotta really get is, you got to somehow make heroes out of these people who are doing something right and let the people who you're trying to teach learn from the people who are doing it well, even if it means you got to overcome prejudice in the people that you're trying to teach to get them to listen to the people who are doing it well. But if, if they can kind of self-develop the plan for the future, remember I talked about observation, imitation, leading to thinking. And so we want to really make sure that this is happening as we're trying to motivate people toward changes that actually work. And so here we are, we're talking microchurch, we're trying to move from legacy church, maybe a seeker driven model, uh, a grow, grow, grow model, whatever it is that we've been doing in the past toward developing a microchurch network. And we're pressing change upon our people. We need to look for first in our church and then in our community, uh, places where this is actually working, and then figure out how can can we get the key people to go and watch, and then to to come back and we'll imitate. Maybe we'll set up a, a few experimental situations, and then we're going to change thinking, and we're going to do this with the masses before we're done. I want to talk about something that's very personal, and that's Hope Chapel. Uh, when we were planting churches, um, we were idiots in the beginning. We knew we wanted to plant churches. We didn't know how. We stumbled into it almost by accident. If you look, use exponentials, uh, five levels of church multiplication, we went from level two where we were stable. We weren't growing. We weren't shrinking. We were happy to level four um, because some people had a need. And we, we planted a church. And then we made a wrong assumption that this is something God's called us to do we're unique. We're different than the rest of the, the body of Christ. So we didn't get that. Um, we uh, had to kind of stand in rebellion to the denomination to get started. And that probably set the denomination uh, against us in a way, although the upper leadership of the denomination totally embraced what we were doing, but they embraced it at a distance. It's like, that's cool. My supervisor 
actually came around and endorsed it and we were violating three bylaws. But then he would always say to me, well, that works because you're in a beach town. That'll work in Southern California. And those kinds of things, uh, and, and it eventually polarized. It got to the point where uh, we would get these uh, denominational church planting leaders for the whole country. And the, 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 the death words that that guy could say is, I've asked Ralph Moore to come and help me do this because I want to learn from the Hope Chapels. Uh, one guy actually did that. And we, we actually did this for like 18 months. And then he got fired over it. And so here is the Genentech thing. We're looking at the people who are doing the thing we say we want to do, but we don't like them for some reason. Maybe it was my punk attitude in the beginning. I don't know. All I know is that they did not jump on what we were doing, learn from it, and then take an example, modify it so that they could use it. And then there's Hope Chapel and Exponential. You know, you all know the story about how Exponential was looking for level five groups and level five leaders, and they discovered us. But, you know, as I'm an old man, I'm like uh, 66 years old when I begin to have a relationship with Exponential. But almost any book that they've written, my name and Hope Chapel appear in the book. Now, I'm not saying this to brag. What I'm saying is, here's some people who, who saw something. It was an outlier. And they go, how can we utilize this to train the people that we're trying to train? It's, it's exactly the power of positive deviance. I'm a positive deviant. And uh, they were willing to learn from me. Maybe that's why you and I are even talking in this series. And then we have this situation that we all face, and that's currently the antagonism of legacy churches versus house churches. I can't tell you the number of uh, negative comments that I've gotten on blogs that I've written and, and things, you know, you're against big churches. No, I pastored two of them. You know, you're this, you're that, you're proof texting, grabbing a scripture out of context. And yeah, I probably do that. I may do that at the end of this talk. I'm not sure. Uh, I think I did a good job, but you'll have to judge that. But it, it really comes down to people feeling threatened by somebody who's doing something differently. And that's the issue that we have to overcome if we're going to motivate our team to do the thing that we're looking for. Think back to Peter Drucker in his book, Managing for Results. It's results that we're after. And so here's three questions you need to ask yourself before you engage this with your team. The first is, what results do I see? Can my advice here is to take a yellow pad and you know scribble out these are the results that I want and then simplify, 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 simplify. So you really get it down to the core thing that you're trying to see happen, the change that you ultimately must see to get where you know that God is trying to take you. Secondly, ask the question, who or where do I see these results? In, in whom or where do I see these results? Who's doing this well, this thing that seems to elude me? And, and, and how can I, you know, suss them out and find out where this is going on? And again, this may be going on in some people that, you know, you don't hold to the same overall values that they do, but in practice, they're getting something done that you'd like to see done. And then the third question is, how can we best observe the practices of those who produce what we're looking for? And, you know, if they're doing microchurch and that's what you're trying to do, you don't want to bring 30 people into their microchurch because you're going to pollute the thing. You're going to bend it by your very presence. And you need to really calculate what you're going to do in terms of 
going to observe the thing that you're wanting to do. And then after asking yourself these questions, you need to ask your team this one question. And then there's some other questions that we're going to ask too. But where can we find microchurch working well? You know, I'd spend an hour with people. You know, you throw the question up on a whiteboard and and then, you know, maybe break them up into little groups and let them talk to each other. And, you know, you, there might be a cult in town that's doing the thing we want to do and doing it really well. What do you know? Where have you seen this? Um, it, it, is it a positive thing? Is it an offensive thing? But, but you know, dig it out of them. Let them bring it to you. And then, of course, the whiteboard comes into play here. You're, you're popping stuff up on the board. And, and now what you do by putting things on the board in this situation is you're, you're giving validity to the observations of the people in the audience. Once it's on the board or on the flip chart, whatever you're writing on, uh, it, it suddenly has value to everybody. And now you kind of sift through it with everybody. And then you decide this is a valuable thing. And again, what we're trying to overcome here is that tendency. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the, the legacy churches versus the house church movement. You know, a lot of people uh, who are talking about doing microchurch will now turn around and talk about the house church movement in a really negative light. All those people are rebellious. I've had people come at me with, you know, this microchurch thing. You're just talking about house churches and you're just going to let any old person go out and start a church on their own and rebellion against it. And, you know, it, it, that's crazy talk. These people are doing something. It's working. Go learn from them. And if they left your congregation because they disagree with your doctrine, well, thank the Lord for that. But go and, and learn from what's out there. See what God is doing in somebody else's life and figure out what you can. I have a very close friend who's learning a lot from Mormons. He lives in a, in a Mormon concentrated community. And he's watching these people and the way that they lead their families. This guy's pastor of a big church. And he's going, man, these guys have got something going for them that we don't have going for us. And uh, that's a very interesting thing. He's not converting to Mormonism, but he certainly is learning from these people. He sees them as outliers. Um, he doesn't embrace their doctrine, but he's embracing a practice that he sees in their life and going, how can I bring this into the lives of the people that I oversee and I influence? And there's good advice in that. Learn to observe those who are doing it, no matter who they are, and learn from them. I want to jump into five implementation questions uh, dealing with positive deviance. And the first one is, where does microchurch work well in our church? You probably have somebody who's been pastoring a small flock in your church, off in a corner, and probably kind of doing their own thing for a long time. And no matter what you do now, as you're trying to get the whole church to go in one direction, they're still going to probably paddle their own canoe in their own direction to some degree. But if you can identify these people and then go and observe them or bring them into your group to talk about what you're doing, maybe interview them in front of people, you can begin to harvest what they're doing that works and get other people on board to embrace what they're doing, observe it, implement it, try it out, test it, and then learn to think differently and modify it so it suits you. The second thing here is, where do we see microchurch working in our community? Now back to the Mormon thing. You know, Mormons are 
um, they do stuff in houses very well. Um, you know, back in the hippie days, we had all these Bible studies. You still got some hippie Bible studies going on in your town. Uh, how can you learn from these people? Sometimes these smaller groups of people that are a little bit independent of everybody else in the body of Christ have a tendency to be authoritarian. And that's a turnoff to me. I don't want the authority thing that goes along with this. But if I can go and make friends with these people and learn from them, I'm certainly going to do it. The third question is, how can we best learn from these people? And in other words, get your people in the act and again, get the whiteboard out because when they make the solutions, uh, they're more valid in their minds than when you bring the solutions. And so uh, again, begin to harvest what it is that, that they're doing and take it to where you want to go. You can always filter it out, but collect it and collect it publicly and endorse, make heroes out of the people who are bringing solutions. And then the, the question to ask, and, and this is really a mind bender for the people that you're trying to work with. I mean, you're bending their minds, you're bending their thoughts. How can we practice what we've learned? And again, here, I got the whiteboard out and I'm, and I'm taking, a, hopefully, a lot of suggestions. I'm oftentimes going, this is you know, where we've come. This is who we've learned from. This is what we think we've learned. Now I want you to break up into small groups and, and come up with you know, six crazy ideas about what we could be doing differently than we're doing. And we're gonna harvest those ideas and bring them back together put them up on the board, and then begin a sorting process with the people in the room so that they have invented the model that you're going to use rather than you coming top down with this is what I learned from, you know, talking to Ralph or something, and we're going to do this thing. So let it come up, you know, grassroots. That's so, so, so important. And then the last question, and I, again, I want to ask this one in public. I want people involved in this, and that is, um, what will keep us from relapsing into old patterns? I mean, one of the things that'll keep us from relapsing into old patterns is we didn't experiment enough, that we didn't see what we're doing. You know, we roll out the program, we've gone through all, everything in a proper way. We've learned from the positive deviance. We've learned about negotiating change in the chasm. We've done everything really, really right. And then we get out here and it doesn't work like what we thought. Well, let's just go back to what we used to do. Well, that's not a good answer what can we change? How can we go back maybe and observe more and come back and modify a little bit? Uh, because it's always better to tinker and fine tune. I've been watching a, a thing that I see on Amazon Prime and it's about aircraft through the ages. And it goes all the way back to the Wright brothers. And there are actually some people in, in England who were managed to fly a glider before the Wright brothers did. I didn't know that, but uh, we're, we're looking at the 747. We're looking at a lot of warplanes in this thing. But especially with the warplanes, uh, they, they would build up to 12 prototypes. And each prototype could do a little bit different things. And they'd crash some. And then they, they go out and learn from the crash site. And sometimes people lost their lives. But they're, they're constantly prototyping and learning, prototyping and learning, prototyping and learning. You need to learn that whenever you get some new thing going in your congregation, you 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 frame it as an experiment you don't frame it as a done deal this is what we're going to do but we're going to learn from ourselves as we do it we're going to come back together and have a lot of little tune-up times and we're going to learn to go in the direction that the lord is really trying to take us and we're going to learn it well because we're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way and so you embrace the mistakes and and you go forward with them 
I want to leave you with a couple of scriptures. And, and here again, maybe I am pulling them out of context. I mean, to some degree, I know that I am, but I think I've got the overall flavor of the thing. And I, I, I want you to think about overcoming pride of procedure. And what do I mean by pride of procedure? Well, that's the way we've always done it. No, our church does it this way. That's pride of procedure. And pride, anytime that we sense pride in our own life, is an enemy to our growth in the Lord. It's, it's an enemy to our personal growth, but pride versus humility is a big problem. And when you get it in a group of people, because we tend to look down on others and all, all of those things. And so uh, it, it's, it's a way of seeking my own life, my own way, rather than laying my life down. And that's really what I'm trying to get to here. And so here's the two scriptures in Mark chapter eight, verses 34 to 36, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Get the deny yourself part here. Let him deny his ways. Let him deny his prejudices. Let him deny his, you know, I cling to this because it's my identity. That's my life. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, get this, for my sake, I know you've already done that. You've committed your life to follow Jesus wherever he'll take you. You're doing the best job you can. You have done the best job you can. Um, but notice this. It says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Well, what would that mean? Well, is there a better way of doing the gospel than the way we've done the gospel in the past? You know, in the next segment of this thing, I want to talk about doing church in a post-Christian era. There's big change coming, and it's going to take three to five years before we even are fully aware of what it looks like, but we've got some hints, and we're, we're going to have to do the gospel differently in our culture, and, and so we're talking about laying down our life, laying down our, our, our prejudice, our position, our identity, if that would be, for the sake of the Lord, which is kind of easy for those of us who follow the Lord at this level, but for the sake of the gospel. You know, old ways have to be laid down so new ways can develop. And then it says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I wonder how many people have really kind of forfeited their soul on the altar of church growth. It's really something to think about. This whole growth versus multiplication argument is really, really important. And, you know, I, I've had guys come on me i was just reading one comment where some guy attacked me for being against large church and always pushing small church i'm talking about both and not either or and and, he, and here's a guy who's pridefully trying to develop i went on his website and looked uh he's not even that successful at it. he's trying to be you know mega church guy and he, he probably will never make it in his lifetime but it's made him angry toward people like us and um, we don't want to be those people. We want to overcome this pride of procedure. Another scripture is in John chapter 12, verse 24. Again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, where Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Many of us, most of us, were trained, we were schooled to be the center of everything. And if we can die to that and find ways of getting into multiplicity, then we're going to produce many seeds, but it's going to cost us something. 
It's going to cost us something in terms of the way our position works. It's going to cost us something in the way that we invest our resources. And it's going to cost us something in terms of the way that we're willing to give up the, the, the pride areas in our life over the way we've done things, the way that we may have been extremely successful in the past, but it's not working anymore. And we just can't hang on to that thing. You know, I'm an old guy. And I worked really hard to always hire younger people. If you left your job, we're going to hire somebody younger than you. We, we just always worked that into what we were doing. But I want you to know there were times that um, I'm, I'm very valid in talking about, well, in the 70s, this thing happened because it was really a move of God. And it was kind of a, an overarching move of God. It will, it'll work in any culture in any time. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here, any culture, any time. The problem is that we've kind of Americanized everything while our brothers overseas and who are maybe even being persecuted are having huge success. So we were holding some things that were very, very valuable. But then we had some ways of doing things that were just what, you know, we did in the good old days and we wanted to hang on to those good old days. And, and you know what, that was pride on my part. And the young guys, they would have a hard time. Uh, sorting out is he just going to go into one of his rants about how good things were back then or is he actually saying something to us that um are, are, are an overarching truth something that we can hang our hat on